you know, in my experience, nonprofits overall are more risk averse than is helpful in an entrepreneurial space. So I believe that the primary hurdle is transitioning from a 100% donation-based model to a earned income revenue model. It's a mindset shift. The organizations that have made that mindset shift are, are going like wildfire. I mean, there's an organization uh, less than a mile from my house and they started with a thrift store and then they moved on to creating a whole new for-profit facility where they provide services that has a revenue of almost equal to their donation-based income stream, 100% mission related, and now they're incubating their third business. So the orgs that get it, go for it. As the founder and CEO of Fundraising for the Future, Stephanie Sample supports organizations in leaning into the expansive nature of grant proposal writing, business plan development, and grant making. Fundraising for the Future is a consulting firm based in New Mexico that has raised over $15 million writing federal, state, and corporate grants for the last seven years. Fundraising for the Future provides philanthropic consultation to a variety of local and regional funders. Their belief is that both traditional best practices and multidisciplinary tools such as futures thinking will be needed to usher organizations and funders into this new era of philanthropy. To learn more, visit their website at fundraisingforthefuture.com. Well, welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, so good to have this conversation. Um, first of all, I mean, just to start with, what is your story? How did you get involved with fundraising and the social impact space? Sure. I've been in fundraising for about 20 years. I was looped onto the board of directors of WMPG 90.9 Portland, Maine, my college radio station. I was the student representative on the board and they promptly put me on the fundraising committee. <laughs> and that was where my assignments began. Uh, it wasn't until about 20, 2010 that I started doing it professionally. And gosh, looking in the review mirror, it's been 13 years. So that's awesome. What is it about fundraising that kind of drew you to it as um, just a part of the sector? That's a that's an interesting question. I think I'm comfortable with asking people for money. I am a <laughs> natural optimist, so I've I've learned over time that I'm wired to be a glass half full thinker, and that serves me well in this profession. And I like to call myself a money magnet. So if there is a need for funding, I like to match that need with a source. So in a way, it's it's a role as a matchmaker. So believing that things are possible, which is my, my natural inclination, and then the challenge of matching need with uh, a product or, you know, flow, cash flow is very, very satisfying. Mm, that's awesome. Well, I can definitely relate to the optimism half glass full. I cannot relate 
And I would imagine many of our members cannot relate to like uh, the ease at which you can ask someone for money. That always feels really awkward. Um, yeah. So, so that's a superpower in itself. Oh gosh. You know, it doesn't, one of the interesting things is it's just like building a muscle. You know, if you do, have you ever watched those YouTube videos where you, you do a hundred pushups a day and they'll show what you look like at day one and day 365. <laughs> so asking is it's about building a muscle, but it's a hard uh, process. Yeah, totally. Well, that's awesome. So you run a consulting firm called fundraising for the future. Um, and I can kind of imagine, you know, what it looks like to work with organizations in need of fundraising help. Uh, but what does your consulting with like the funders and the philanthropic organizations look like? Sure, absolutely. So we do philanthropic advising and that's we've been in that space really since 2018. We've worked with a variety of different funding organizations and sometimes it looks like a community impact needs assessment. So the funder wants to support the nonprofit community, but they don't know necessarily how or what the need is or what would best serve. And so, uh, for example, in one instance of philanthropic advising, we had hosted community uh, focus groups and we interviewed over 100 nonprofit organizations and consolidated data and presented back to the community funder what the overwhelming need uh, that ex was expressed was. Um, in another instance, we worked with a family foundation who was sunsetting. They were getting ready to begin the process of giving away all of their funds in their lifetime, right? It's something that we're seeing more and more of. Wow. And they hired us to in effect, screen organizations for their ability to handle, steward, and receive a six or seven figure gift. So what would that look like over time? Did they have the infrastructure in place? Uh, would it make sense? What would it lead to a legacy impact for the family foundation? So we did a process of grant readiness screening for that um, family foundation. So those are a couple of examples. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting to kind of hear it from the other side. And I like the analogy that you had where you're kind of this matchmaker. So to be able to pair um, what a foundation is looking for, the kind of legacy a family might be looking for, uh, alongside with organizations that have the same heart, but also, um, you know, that structure in place does sound like it's really important and does take a lot of work to vet and and make sure that everything is going to be a great match. Right. More money. I mean, more money doesn't always fix organizational problems. Right. Sometimes it makes them worse. Right. So what are the things that you do look for? Uh, you know, again, our membership is probably going to be more on that receiving side. How do we write for grants? How do we make ourselves available? So can you go into a little bit more detail about what that looks like in terms of an organization preparing to be grant ready, you know, like, like you just said, money does not solve all your problems. What do organizations need to be working towards? What are the things that you're looking for, for that preparedness of an organization? Oh, that's such a good question, David. It's a lot of it is housekeeping items. You know, one organization that, that, we worked with and they were just around the $1 million mark of their operating budget. They had had a, a series of uh, leaders who did not keep their financial records. And as a result, they had a few years where they were missing audits. 
And um, because of that, they had lost their good standing with the charity registrar in the state of New Mexico. And when we started working with them, the beginning process of, of getting ready for grant submission was addressing that issue. All right, if we're going to be submitting grants to sophisticated funders, they're going to need to know that you're registered with the charity registrar in our state. And in order to do that, and you can see how we work backwards from there in order to do that, we need uh, up-to-date audits in order to do that. We need to do some forensics. And in the end, uh, three months later, you know, we did untangle their standing and they had four out of five years. They needed five. The charity registrar had a process for uh, asking for an exemption. They asked for an exemption. They went through that conversation and they were reinstated. So I, one of the reasons why I love grant seeking is that it's so process heavy it's just like life. It's like planting a garden. You know, you can't wave a magic wand over your garden and have tomatoes. You have to test your soil and check the pH. And maybe you need to add, um, you know, add something, um, add fertilizer, add compost and begin to prepare for putting your seeds in the ground. And that way you're not just going to keep throwing seeds onto a space that's not ready and hoping that they bloom slash wondering why they're not growing. So it, it is really process heavy, but that's that's one example of a piece of grant readiness. And uh, I could keep going, but yeah, no, that's that's really fantastic. Um, so that's all in that nonprofit space. Do you also pair people with for-profit organizations? And if so, are there organizations or funding groups that are looking for for-profits specifically? Not so much um, in the for-profit space. As it turns out, I end up doing business planning. So, for example, uh, I saw this business that is very high profile and it's women run and they're amazing. And, you know, I started chatting with them about their business plan. And it looks like we're going to jump into a collaboration where I'm going to actually help pull together a 12 to 18 month projection it's something I've done for a variety of organizations, some for profit, but mostly nonprofit because I'm, I'm so passionate about projecting and projecting is just something that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with. They feel like, how could we know how much money we're going to make? How could we know how much money we're going to spend? And so as a result, you end up just looking back at your PLs, like, oh, look, we made this much. We spent this much instead of looking forward. So, you know, I just finished a comprehensive business plan for a grant, a three-year grant for a nonprofit organization where we projected out three years of revenue, three years of expenses, how, how that business would be solvent, how it would be managed, the timeline for growth. That process is so exciting for me and also extremely practical extremely practical because it's your roadmap for how can we implement our vision, whether the vision is a new product or service, or whether the vision is to reduce overhead and increase your profit margin, or whether the vision is to actually buy your own property to support the business instead of renting and having all your cash go to your landlord. So how can we bring those kind of wish list items into reality in a business plan is is really fun for me. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's so awesome. And it totally makes sense too, because it's, it's so much more empowering to kind of have this structure that you're working from that says, Hey, if we do these things, you know, we can achieve this goal. It, I mean, it's, it's like with any goal, you have to kind of have steps in place for how you're going to get there instead of just year by year kind of waiting and seeing and like, is this the year we, you know, increase this or, or do that. Um, but actually having a plan in place that is, you know, realistic, that's, you know, might span years, but is, like you said, a roadmap. So I think that's, that's super cool. So what other tools, what other lenses do you use to help nonprofits kind of achieve their goals and, and in your consulting work? Sure. That's a great, great question. And I'm, I'm using a tool that I started using in 2020 as a result of COVID coming into play. And when the pandemic hit, you know, we all remember no one knew when things would open up again, you know, when, uh, cash flow might increase for folks who were, who had lost their jobs, um, what the government was going to do to support uh, individuals and households who are suffering and what businesses could count on for customers coming to their facilities in person, if they could at all. And in this space of deep uncertainty, which I had never experienced anything like it in my life, I began to see more and more of this generative uh, imagination space where people began to play with scenarios for the future. And I latched right onto it. I remember reading, you know, a July 2020 report from Deloitte and it had four different scenarios and it had all these quadrants and it said, here's what's going to happen in this event and in this event. And I got turned on to a organization based out of Palo Alto, California, called the Institute for the Future. And through Coursera, I took four courses on futures thinking from the Institute for the Future. And futures thinking has become part of my DNA as a consultant. I I believe that a lot of times people are scared of the future because it represents the unknown. Um, you know, I had a business owner ask me the other day, but if you do a projection for me, how can you be a hundred percent certain that that projection is going to happen? And I had to laugh because if I could be a hundred percent certain, I'd be making a lot more money than I am making yeah, today. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is not certainty. You know, the point is to be able to perceive change as it's happening which is harder than you think, and then to interpret and respond to that change, right? Like we're seeing with AI, okay, people, people are perceiving the change. Some people are still thinking that's not, it's not here yet. It's out there. So they're not responding because they're not perceiving it as here. Right, right. It, it sort of sounds like there's this marriage of trying to interpret the quantitative data with the qualitative, like the future world. You're, you're paying attention to the conversations. You're paying attention to like people's emotions or whatever it is that might be driving some change. You're looking at individuals, but you're also looking at a broader society. But sometimes it's really hard because like just the purchase habits haven't changed yet, but you can see maybe some trends and 
So it sort of sounds like uh, that level of work is trying to read both well and, and see where they intersect. Totally. And I love what you said, David, about seeing trends. And in futures thinking, they call them signals. So a signal of change. And it's it's a little flag, a little missive from the future of something that's not happening all the time, but is beginning to show up. And these signals gain intensity and frequency the closer the change comes to the present moment. But in the beginning, you think about, you know, ATMs were developed approximately 80 years before they were ubiquitous and and implemented as a part of the U.S. banking system. Um, You know, crypto has been around for, you know, a decade and a half or however long it's been around before we started hearing NBC or Fox or anyone else talking about it and the nightly news. So um, looking for those signals of, hmm, I never have seen a flyer taped to the stop sign at the end of my street for a lost drone before. It's always been a lost cat or a dog, but someone just put a reward out for their lost drone and wow. that's, that's <laughs> new. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's wild. That's awesome. Yeah. All that's just, uh, you know, so fascinating. I think really important and, and why organizations, whether you're for-profit or non-profit need the consultants that can live in that space. And you're keyed in a little bit, maybe more for looking out for specific flags. Yeah. What would you say then is the biggest challenge facing non-profit social enterprises today? That's a really great question. The biggest challenge facing non-profit social enterprises. You know, in my experience, Nonprofits overall are more risk averse than is helpful in an entrepreneurial space. So I believe that the primary hurdle is transitioning from a 100% donation-based model to a earned income revenue model. It's a mindset shift. The organizations that have made that mindset shift are, are going like wildfire. I mean... There's an organization uh, less than a mile from my house and they started with a thrift store and then they moved on to creating a whole new for-profit facility where they provide services that has a revenue of almost equal to their um, donation-based income stream, mission-related, 100% mission-related, and now they're incubating their third business. So the orgs that get it, go for it. But there are so many in this space of hesitancy of where do we get the startup capital? Who's going to run it is also a big thing because you have generally understaffed nonprofit orgs who are some people were wearing two and three hats. So I think that first step is the biggest challenge. The need is recognized. People understand we need more control over our finances. We're tired of just searching for that golden funder who's going to give us unrestricted funding. So we have freedom over our revenue. That is, you know, that's not happening. People give funding with strings attached. So Mm -hmm. taking charge of the revenue and saying, all right, we, 
we created this money, we earned it. It's from, it's from our design. It's part of our business plan. And now we can use it to accomplish those, those goals that we're trying to find funders to fit into our, our plan to accomplish. Wow. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's so awesome. And that is such a common pain point that we hear about from, you know, the nonprofits in our organization of just that, that unrestricted funding or that even general operation funding, it's so hard to come by um, to just be able to survive and grow as an organization in the way that you want to, that can be really tough to find someone who's aligned enough to, to kind of make that happen. So when a nonprofit has a social enterprise element, how do funders typically view that and respond to that? Is that a positive? Is that Does that make them more attractive to funders because they have this income generation outside of uh, donor and grant funding? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the question that I would ask because mm-hmm. I think attractiveness to funders is often held above fiscal sustainability. Wow. You, yeah. you know, so if the bottom line is that your business model is going to make you more sustainable. If you lose some funders because of that, Mm. but your organization is more sustainable. I mean, you can't, you can't make everyone happy. You certainly can't. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've seen organizations go through a process where they stop giving away services for free. So painful, so painful, right? Okay. We go into the community and we do 200 workshops a year. These workshops are so valued. Great. How much do you charge for your workshops? Nothing. Okay, 200 workshops. If you put a $500 honorarium on them, that's a hundred grand. That would, do you think the community would support a $500 honorarium for that workshop? Do you think that something like that would turn a funder off if it does? you you have 100 grand you know you're getting this reciprocal exchange and a lot of times this fear that somehow the organization is going to be seen as greedy or not service based just fades away as as they're received well as they're received as a business yeah yeah no that makes sense so I'm I'm curious to kind of ask the question from the opposite end. Again, you give us a perspective being that matchmaker from uh, both people that are at the table. What are the biggest challenges facing funders today? Hmm. That's really an interesting question. So nonprofit funders, what challenges are they facing? I feel like in the sector as a whole, I was just chatting with, I was just chatting with a table full of people about this the other day. And I really feel this breaking point in the, the collective consciousness around coordination. And it is not about what, what we fund necessarily or how much we fund, but there's this pressure to be more coordinated there's this pressure to be more aligned and be working in partnership with each other. Um, you know, the nonprofit sector has grown incredibly in the last five years. It's on, it's on track to grow exponentially in the next 20 years. I feel like we're really in this maturation point. And there are 9,000 nonprofits in New Mexico. All right. How many of those have overlapping missions? Part of 
the burden of cooperation lies with the organizations and part lies with the funding sector. You know, do they know what other funders are doing? Do they know how they fit into the matrix? Are they talking to each other and sharing solicitations for funding? Are they coordinating their RFPs? Are they looking holistically at the issues facing society? And when they make their distribution decisions. So I really see that coordination pressure as a, a growth point for where we're at now. And you can see it too with this, these larger funders like, uh, you know, NSF and who's putting out a lot of RFPs around data collection and data coordination and trying to take all these disparate data pools that exist in municipalities and nonprofits and educational bodies and service providers and say, all right, we have 500 data streams. Everyone has their own data stream. How can we build something where we can all access that information together? I feel like that's, that's a really important headline for where we're at today. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so interesting. I, it gives me hope to kind of hear you talk about it because it's like, okay, yeah, like there are solutions and, and it's awesome that collaboration and working together is like a huge part of that because, you know, no one is an island. We're all working on the same goals and working towards the same things together, um, which is so cool. So that's kind of where things are at now. What do you see for the sector in the coming years? What do you think that people need to be looking out for? Okay. Let me grab my crystal ball. Okay. <laughs> I just polished it last night. So, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a little rub here. And, and, I, and we need you to be a hundred percent accurate. So. Yeah. 100%. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the future, I really believe that is it's going to be marked by the giving pledgers by our uber wealthy 1% billionaires who begin this cash transfer, which is really part of what's going to mark my career for the next 20 years is the transfer of wealth from, from the boomers to the next generation. And we've already seen it happen with giving pledgers who are acting on their commitment to give away their funds in their lifetime. Mackenzie Scott is leading the pack. Those dollars as they flow into the nonprofit sector are going to force a level of growing up, a level of maturation in businesses. They're also going to attract more professionals from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector who just say, I'm tired of working for cash. I want cash and meaning. And look, there's a salary that's comparable to my salary over here. Here I come with all my skills and expertise. So I believe that the cash is going to attract a, a, a different level of professional with perhaps more experience to the sector. And we're going to see a lot of growth. I also think that as we have this Silver tsunami of, I told you before we chatted, 12 million businesses are going to change hands in the next 10 to 15 years. 
Boomers own 12 million businesses. Okay, that is 10 trillion worth of assets that are that are going to be changing hands in the next two decades. They they estimate, and I think it's AARP estimates 70% of the companies, 70% of 10 trillion will change hands. All right. So some of those businesses are going to end up in nonprofits, which is super exciting because it is in many ways easier to buy a business that has an established customer base that has tools, has a product, has a list, has marketing channels to buy that business and run it than it is to begin a business from the ground up. So you think about it from a boomer's perspective. All right, I'm 65. I own a an ice cream shop. It's been around for 30 years. I've made a living doing it. It is well known in the community. Here is this nonprofit over here that works with young people and gaining skills for employment. They're interested in buying my shop. I might sell it to them. I get the warm fuzzies of selling it to a nonprofit. They get a place to put their uh, young people in front of customers to learn skills in interpersonal relationships, in business management, in customer service and quality control. It's a win-win. So I really see also that some of that chunk of change is going to go into the nonprofit sector as nonprofits say, Hey, I want, I want to do this. This makes sense. This helps us be sustainable. It helps us meet our mission. Yeah, that's so good. And I think so important to be aware of, um, again, we kind of mentioned it a few times, but that optimism, uh, it's not something made up. Like that's what I'm hearing. It's like, no, there's real meaning to, to why you're an optimist and what you see as it lies ahead. So I think this is a super valuable conversation just as we anticipate this kind of next wave of an ecosystem and, and how we can be preparing now for what that looks like ahead um, and really taking our, all of our impact to the next level. Uh, th that's kind of why I'm walking away from just not only what you just said, but this whole conversation. So I think that, um, you know, ultimately we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing so much insight, uh, from your perspective, which is really helpful. Uh, where can people, if they want to plug in and connect with you, where can they find you and your work and more about what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really, really fun to be here and I am at fundraisingforthefuture.com. That's my website. You can definitely find me there. I am going to be speaking in person August 16th, 17th, and 18th in Baltimore, Maryland, as part of the Eastern Grants Summit. So in August, I'll be, I'll be over in Baltimore. It's a great city. And coming right up on June 8th, I'll be part of a panel hosted by Learn Grant Writing. And that's called Your Wish Granted Tips and Tricks for Grant Writers. So those are a few places you can touch down, but find me on LinkedIn. And if I'm speaking somewhere or teaching somewhere, I always post about it and would love to see folks, see folks there. Or even, you know, I actually still pick up my phone. <laughs> That's awesome. 
So not everything about you is in the future. He's still not everything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so great, Stephanie. It was so great to have this conversation with you. And thank you so much for just sharing your expertise and your insight. Um, and it's gotten me excited thinking about the future for sure. Thanks for having me.